is actually from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sunnybrook Christian Church. Uh, We are in the season of gift giving, and I consider it a great gift uh, to be able to be here and to share some thoughts of the word from you. I am so grateful to have met Jim as a young guy and for his mentorship and then friendship. And I don't want to get too sappy, but if he has, I don't know, if you have 100 kind words to say about me, I have about 10,000 to say about him. So um, the many times he's spoken truth in my life has been a blessing for sure. And those words don't even really capture it. Um, but as much as it has been good to, to see Jim spend time with him and so many others here on this team too that we've come to know well, um, starting with Andrea and then on down the list. Um, it is also a great gift to be here at this church. I love this church. Uh, my, all of my interactions, I grew up in Tulsa, and so I had some interactions with this church as a young guy, and then I've had more and more as a pastor, and then now as a professor, and you guys are a different kind of church. I hope you know that, that you are blessed, and, and, um, and be grateful to God that this is the communion, the community that he has called you to be a part of. I remember I was teaching a class at, at Ozark um, years ago, and I, it was kind of, it was an introductory course to, you know, discipleship, and to being a person that really is pursuing Jesus intentionally, and to, ultimately, we train pastors, and so to, to lead churches, to go on to lead churches that are very intentional about discipleship. And uh, to be honest, and, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to be negative toward any particular church. Everybody's doing the best they can, I presume. But not a lot of, not a lot of churches are really good at, at, at intentionally doing this. And so the whole setup of one of the first days of this course was the church you came from probably wasn't super great, but we want to teach you how to be better. And that was the talking point. I remember this one year, I would go through these rhetorical questions, you know, how many of you are from a church that is intentional about, you know, here's how to become a, a serious disciple of Jesus and how many of your churches balance an emphasis on studying the word with serving the community? And all, almost all the time, you know, the students are like, yeah, my church doesn't really do that well. And the whole point is to set them up to say, we're going to teach you to do better. Well, this one year, I had this young man named Blake Pasetsky. Some of you guys may remember Blake, who grew up in this church. And I'm trying to do my little talking point. Like, how many of you guys are from a church that has an intentional plan of discipleship? He's like, oh, yeah, we, we do. We do, my church. Okay, okay, okay. How many of your churches, you know, balance time in the word with, with serving the community? Oh, we do, we do at my church. So I got fed up with it finally. I'm like, how many of you come from a perfect church? And I just look at Blake, and he's like, perfect? Have you met Jim Johnson? <laughs> but you guys really do. Go to a special church, man. You, and you guys aren't afraid to be different. You're not afraid to say, this is who we believe we're called to be. This is what we think is true. So come what may, we're in. It reminds me, actually, of, I heard a story one time about this third grade classroom. 
And uh, the teacher of this classroom, now bear with me on this, the teacher of this classroom was going on and on to the students about how she was part of Sooner Nation. She was an Oklahoma Sooners fan. And so she's just carrying on about how great the Sooners are and the traditions and Boomer Sooner and all this. And so then she asks her classroom, how many of you would say that you're part of Sooner Nation? And a lot of little kids raise their hand. They don't even know what she's talking about. They just want to please their teacher, you know, so hands are going up, except for this one little girl named Chrissy, middle of the room, hand down. And the teacher's like, Chrissy, why aren't you raising your hand? And she said, because I'm not a fan of the Oklahoma Sooners. I'm not part of Sooner Nation. Well, why aren't you a part of Sooner Nation? She said, because I'm a proud fan of the Oklahoma State Cowboys. She beat her chest twice and pointed to the sky. You know? Said, go Pokes. Anyway, the teacher's like, well, why are you a fan of the Cowboys? And Chrissy says, well, because my mom's a fan of the Cowboys and my dad's a fan of the Cowboys, so I'm a fan of the Cowboys. Now, at this point, any sense of professionalism would have led the teacher to just let it go, just move on. But for some reason, this bothered her. And so I'm not even kidding you. The teacher says to her, well, what if your mom was a moron and your dad was a moron? What would that make you? But Chrissy wasn't faced. She just said, well, obviously, that would make me part of Sooner Nation. <laughs> now, if you're a Sooners fan, I apologize. It's just, you know, talk to Jim afterwards because I don't want to talk to you about it. But I hope it didn't hurt your feelings. But the point is, you guys are Chrissy, man. Like, you guys are a church that you're, you're going to do what you think is best, and, and the, leader, the leadership on down, and I'm grateful to be here. And I'm especially grateful to be starting a series on Jesus called He Is. I mean, come on. I believe that what we always need most is a clear vision of Jesus. No matter what's going on in and around us, what we need more than anything else, we have lots of needs, but what we need more than anything else is an understanding of him that fits who he actually is. And to that end, over the course of this whole month, you guys are going to be going through this series called He Is, and we're going to be looking at uh, different of the descriptions of Jesus that come out of the Christmas stories, the birth narratives, and unpacking what some of these words mean. So today it's Jesus, and then it's Emmanuel, and then peace, and then king, and then worthy, and, and I plan on tuning in just to be a part of this uh, from a distance. And today we are starting with Matthew chapter 1, the great Christmas text from Matthew 1. So I know it's been read probably one and a half times so far, but I'd like to look at it again with you. And so if you're a person uh, that uh, benefits from your eyes being on the text, open up your Bibles to Matthew 1 and uh, look there in your Bibles at this passage while I read it. You can, of course, follow along on the screens as well. You're welcome to close your eyes and just listen. I'll assume that you're awake <laughs> for now. And, um, and let's hear once again what the word of the Lord has to say to us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Anybody in here ever heard this text before? It's like there's a couple of things you can count on in Christmas season. You're going to get some gifts, somebody's going to complain about consumerism, and you're going to hear Matthew 1, you know, it's, it just happens. It's, it's, it just happens every year. Like, we're, we're familiar with this passage, which in certain ways is a good thing. I think the Bible is designed to be reread, 
Because the more you look closely, the more you'll find. But it's a dangerous thing for another reason. Because the more times you hear it, the easier it becomes to check out when it's read. I'm sure some of us have been guilty even this morning of when the text is being read, we just sort of zone out because, I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've heard it before. It's like I'm, 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 I'm one of the cliche, I'm that kid that grew up near train tracks. And so even today, I mean, it's been years since I lived by train tracks. Even today, if I'm sleeping at a place and train tracks are nearby, it might disturb everybody else in the house or the hotel. I'm just going to keep sleeping soundly because I've gotten so used to hearing those tracks just in the background noise that I don't even hear it anymore. That's a dangerous thing when it comes to a passage like this. That's a dangerous thing when it comes to Jesus. I know a lot of people who were following Jesus, and then you get to like later on in life not following Jesus, but it wasn't like all of a sudden they woke up day one or day, you know, on a Tuesday, and they were fully devoted to him, meditating on the gospel, living a Jesus life, and then on on Wednesday, you know what, I'm done. It doesn't happen like that. It's not that, it's like a drifting It's like when you go to the river or to the ocean and you put your stuff up on the beach and get out and play in the water and then you look up an hour later and you think, somebody stole my stuff. And you realize nobody stole your stuff. You just were carried by the current. You just drifted down 50, 100 yards and your stuff's over there. That's how it happens. Long before we reject Jesus, we lose sight of him. Long before we deny the gospel, we stop slowing down and actually thinking about what it says. This is an important passage for us because there's more than maybe we've seen before. It reminds me of a story I heard about Walt Disney and his daughter, Diane. She's grown now, but when she was six years old, she came up to her dad and she tugged on his jacket and said, uh, Daddy, are you Walt Disney? And he said, yeah, babe, like, who'd you think I was? And she said, no, 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 are you the Walt Disney who makes movies? Some of the kids at school said you were, and I wanted to find out for sure. And he smiled and said, yes, babe, I'm the Walt Disney who makes movies. And so she just sort of sheepishly pulled out a piece of paper and held it up to her daddy and said, can I have your autograph? <laughs> he pulled out his fountain pen and dashed off that world-famous signature that we see before the movies and before the shows, and he gave it back to her, patted her on the back. And she skipped off to a world much larger than the one she had inhabited before. Nothing had changed except for her understanding of what she always had. And my hope is that we can look at a passage like this with that same mentality. Maybe there's more here than I've known. Now, the big picture is fairly clear. You know, jo- Joseph and Mary are, Mary are engaged. They're betrothed to be married. And so they're planning on uniting their lives together. And, and we learn from Luke that Mary has had some experiences with an angel and the Holy Spirit. And she's now pregnant in a miraculous way to give birth to the Messiah. But Joseph didn't get to hear all of that. And he just sees his, you know, fiance coming to him and saying, by the way, you're about to see a, a baby bump. A what bump? A baby bump. Because I'm pregnant. And he understands how things work, and so he plans to, to walk away, but not quietly, doesn't want to bring shame to her name. And then this, this angel comes to him and says, no, don't be afraid. Like, this is the plan. She is conceived of a child of the Holy Spirit. You're going to name the kid Jesus. And so that's the story. And Joseph really is the emphasis in Matthew's angle on this story. He's the one that our attention is drawn to. And there are two details in particular that, that we were, we're invited to see here in this narrative. One is that Joseph is a righteous man. He's a just man. He's a God-honoring, God-following man. And the other one is that he's the son of David. He is, he is in the line of, of the king, great King David, who was promised that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. And we discover that being a righteous man isn't what we would necessarily expect. A righteous man is someone who would indeed not marry this woman. And in this context, in that cultural context, he would not marry this woman, but he wouldn't draw attention to it. He would just let her off. And then he discovers in the story, and we discover through him, that being a righteous person 
When it comes to this particular narrative, when it comes to this particular event, being a righteous person looks different than we expected. And I think Matthew's almost inviting us to lean in and to say if being a righteous person looks different than we expected, then maybe this son of David will also break the mold. I think Matthew's saying, pay attention to this story. Stay tuned for what's to come. And that's the story. And, and of course, again, the, 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 the main line, for, if you will, the part that we're going to focus in on is where the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's why he is Jesus. But let's try to understand this. Let's dig in a little bit because this name concept is a pretty thick concept in Scripture. And it can have a lot of different connotations. Sometimes the name refers to a person's reputation. So we pray for God, you know, hallowed be your name. May your name be respected. May your reputation be respected in a way that fits who you actually are. A name can also speak of authority. It's not just sort of the general reputation. But if I come in the name of someone, I come on their authority. So we pray in the name of Jesus. And it's not just something that we say because it's what we say. It actually has meaning. I'm coming before you, God, and I'm asking you to listen to my prayer, not on my own authority. Nothing about this, nothing about me is going to cause you to listen, but I come in the name of Jesus, and therefore I come trusting on his authority. You will hear me, and you will give me the good things that I'm asking for. So the name means reputation and authority, but really at the core of all of this is that in certain instances, a name can capture the essence of a person or the purpose of a person. You really know a person better if you know their name. So in Old Testament, you think about Nabal. His name means fool, which makes sense if you know the stories about him. He was an idiot. Eve, her name means mother of all living. Babel, the name of that place means confusion. Isaac's name means laughter because of the cynical laughter Sarah laughed when told that she was going to conceive at such an old age. And because of the happy laughter that she laughed when she held the baby in her arms. To know someone's name is to know that person better than those who don't know the name. It's to understand something about them. And so the name of Jesus matters for us. You know, Jesus is what we call him. In English, the word Jesus, kind of like the Greek word Jesus or, or Jesus, points back actually to a Hebrew name, Yeshua. And Yeshua is a combination of two Hebrew words, Yahweh, the name of God, and the Hebrew verb saves. So when you say Yeshua, you're saying Yahweh saves. That's literally what it means. When you say Jesus, you're saying Yahweh saves. And why is this his name? Because saving is what he came here to do. To understand his name is to know why he came. Jesus saves. Now, there's a familiar claim. You probably intuitively grasp, or you've probably been taught well and understand that the manger doesn't mean anything on its own. The manger gathers its significance from the cross. Matthew certainly sees this quite clearly because of the birth we're talking about saving people from sins. How? Well, the cross. And I seriously doubt that the manger and the cross were made from the same piece of wood. But while they may lack identicality and substance, they cannot be separated if you're to understand this person. To understand his name is to know why he came. Jesus came to die. Why? Because he's Jesus and he saves it reminds me of, I can't believe I'm doing this, but it reminds me of like the worst preacher joke I've ever heard in my life. I like very little about this joke, but I like one thing I'll tell you at the end. All right, so century, ages ago, millennia ago, before the creation of the world, Jesus and Satan were arguing about who was better on a computer, and they would not shut up about it. They're going on and on and on, and God the Father is so tired of the bickering that he says, all right, listen, here's how it's going to go. We're going to have a contest. 
I've got you guys computers, I've got your printers, I've got you everything you could possibly need. And for one hour, I want you both to do everything that you can do on a computer. And at the end of that hour, you can print out your work, show me who has the work, and I will decide for all time which of you is better on a computer. All right, go. And so they went after. I mean, they're doing old school stuff like faxing stuff and they're, they're typing up emails and they're texting people through their computers and they're doing all kinds of graphic design and they're writing poetry and stories and they're just working. I mean, Jesus is working with heavenly efficiency and Satan is faster than, well, he's fast, okay? You get the point. So they're just motoring through this thing. Then like 50 minutes into this context, about 10 minutes before it's over, the power goes out. Satan just starts swearing. I mean, every curse word you can imagine and some that you probably couldn't, you know? Jesus just sits back in his chair and relaxes. Nine minutes go by, no power. One minute before this thing is up, the power comes back on. Satan is frantically hitting his computer keyboard. Oh, all my work is lost. It's all gone. And Jesus just quietly and patiently starts printing out his work. Satan sees this and he can't believe it. How is, how is it that he, no, like this is not fair. He cheated. How come he has all his work and I have none of mine? And God the Father just shrugs your shoulders and says, well, Jesus saves. It's pretty cringeworthy. I want to be clear, I endorse neither the theology nor the comedic value of this joke. But I do love the punchline. Jesus saves. Not everybody feels the same way, though. I still remember years ago, I was reading this uh, article. I think it was on ESPN.com or Sports Illustrated or something. It was written by Rick Riley. You guys sports nerds, you probably know that name. He wrote for a long time for uh, those, those companies at different times. And, and I remember at this particular time, it was when Tebow was, was playing for the Broncos and it was the hot story. And he was writing about Tim Tebow and he was talking about all the good he was doing in the world. And I'll never forget this one line in the article. He said, you know, I'm not a religious person. I don't want to be saved. But how can you not be impressed by somebody this bent on doing good for others? And what stood out to me about that line was not, uh, was not anything about Tebow. It was Riley's attitude towards salvation. What is he rejecting? I remember thinking, like, does he even know? Does he even really precisely understand what that means? I mean, do we? He does not, obviously. And not just because he rejected it. I think there are people who have understood the offer of the gospel and who have said no. He clearly doesn't even understand the, the offer of the gospel, not just because he rejected it, but because of how. He seems to be under the impression that what matters is whether we want to be saved. But that's not what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not important because some of us want it. Christmas is necessary because all of us need it. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in the custom and spotlight what we want. We sing about all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth or all I want for Christmas is you. We make memes, we make lists. Every kid has their Christmas list. My kids have, I think, had a running list since like March, you know? And when we see little kids around this season, what do we ask them? We say, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm not hating on this. I'm not really even criticizing. It's not all bad. We give gifts on Christmas for good and appropriate reasons. And it would be really like weird not to give people things that they actually want. But maybe let's be careful. Or maybe better yet, let's be discerning. And let's think this through. Let's not get so caught up in what we want that we lose sight of what we need. Let's not be some so fixed, become so fixed on, on preference and desire and forget that we actually hang in the balance along with the rest of the world between glory and glory. And fire. I know that's kind of intense for a Christmas sermon, especially from a guest, but at the same time, like, why else do you think Jesus would leave heaven? You think he came down here to offer a few pro tips on how to live your best life now? <laughs> Hardly. 
And it's not that he doesn't want the best for you. Even now, of course he does. He wants to transform your present. But that's not what brought him down here. He didn't come down here to improve you. He came down here to save you and me from our sins. And the salvation that he offers is found only in him. It is exclusively and singularly provided here, which is why we need to know his name. To save his people from their sins. That's the line. Let's break it down a bit. We know how to define words. To save something or someone is to rescue someone from danger. That's what it means. If a person's in a situation where they're in danger, to save them is to rescue them from that situation. We get that. And here the situation is sins. To rescue from sins. We know what sin is, even if we don't have a great definition. You know, this particular word is about missing the target, missing the mark. It means that God has designed us for a certain path, for a certain way, and we've missed the mark. We've veered right or veered left or veered up or down. We haven't stayed on target. So it refers to our, sometimes our willful acts of rebellion, sometimes our foolish acts of, of unbelief. But either way, sin is, you know, the things we do that aren't what God wants from and for us. We understand what it means to be saved from sins. But there's another part of this phrase, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not even sure, I think this is true, I don't even know if it was until thinking about this text for this message that I stopped and paused and paid attention to the words I usually don't focus on. His people. To save his people from their sins. Who is this? His people. This is us, right? Like, surely it's us. Okay. Well, not so fast, though. Because Jesus focused almost exclusively in his own earthly ministry, not on everybody, but on his people, meaning the people of Israel. And this is a theme in Jesus' ministry, and so it shows up in all four Gospels. Matthew probably emphasizes it as much or more than anybody. We'll learn later on in this Gospel that Jesus himself says, hey, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's not us. And I step back and wonder, like, this is very interesting. Like, why would he say that he was sent to save his people from their sins? Well, because they needed saved. His people were distanced from God in a very literal sense, first of all. I mean, these are people who have been promised by God that when they're in his blessing, they will live in a certain strip of land. They will live in the promised land. And he brought his people centuries ago into that land and they lived there in his blessing, but it didn't go very well because they didn't actually appreciate his blessing and they didn't obey. And so God brought in other nations to come and bring judgment on them. So, and, 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 and as a result of this, they were exiled. They were literally distanced from God's promises in the land he designed for them. And this literal geographical distance was symbolic of the spiritual distance, this break that occurred because they had not kept their side of the covenant. And similarly, when Jesus comes along, it's symbolic when he gathers 12 disciples. And it's his way of saying, I have come to restore God's people, to bring them back together. His people currently are distanced from God and they're destined for judgment. Again, I want you to think literally. I want you to think about first century Jewish people, Jesus' own people, who were living at a time when the Messiah came and Jesus knew this was the moment that God was sending him to offer them salvation. And he knew that some would reject him, that they would not believe in him. And as a result of not believing in him, they would continue to fight against the wrong things. They would continue to fight against Rome and that God's judge, just like God had judged Assyria, Israel with the Assyrians and he judged Israel with the Babylonians, Jesus knew and said, God is going to judge you with the, through the Romans. You keep rejecting me and fighting against them and the wrong way God is going to come and judge this nation and this is what he announced as the judgment that was coming but then you need to understand like every all empires kill but the Romans the Romans killed by putting people up on crosses and so what Jesus did is he he went before his people and died the death for which they were headed literally 
He died in their place and took upon himself the historical manifestation of God's wrath in the form of a cross so that they might trust in him and so be saved from this hideous fate. That is what it meant for the first time for Jesus to save his people from their sins. But it's certainly not all that it meant for them. Or, wait, this is about us. I remember about a month ago, I was driving through town with my daughter, Claire. She's nine, and, and it was around Halloween, and she was saying, you know, Daddy, why do some people like to dress up as creepy, evil things? I just don't understand it. And so I'm a nerd, so I gave her the whole history of Halloween and All Saints Day and All Hallows Eve and da 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 And she's like, okay, Daddy. And then I realized I needed to make this a little simpler. So I said, well, babe, at the end of the day, I mean, these people need Jesus. And she said, yeah, they do, huh? And then she was quiet for a minute in the back, back seat of the car. She kept on driving, and then she said, uh, Daddy, we need Jesus too, don't we? And I said, yes, sweetheart, we do. See, if it weren't for Christmas, we would be distanced from God. If you're not in Christ right now, regardless of how you feel, you are distanced from God. You are not close to him. And even on this side of the manger and the cross and our faith, we are distanced from all that he wants for us. Sure, sure, sure. If we're in Christ, we live every moment with his favor because our justification is not rooted in our own perfection. It's rooted in his, and this is good news. But at the same time, can we like stop pretending maybe for a minute? Can we like exit the game and not play the I'm going to church, I'm gonna put on my best face game? The one that we do for Sundays and other times when we're going to run into church people in the community. Oh, hi, how's it going? Great, things are good here too. Can we like come out of hiding Because what we hide can't be healed. And what we keep secret can't be saved. I'll I'll admit it, I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the, the person I want to be. I'm not the husband or the father or the professor or the preacher I want to be. And it's not about the quality of the sermon, it's about the consistency between the words that come out and the life that I live. Are you different? I mean, I'm made to reflect Christ himself, <laughs> hardly. Now, by grace, I'm not what I, used, I'm used, what I used to be. I sin much less than before because his name is Jesus. And sometimes I look like Jesus. But you know what sometimes means? It means sometimes I don't. Remember, there was, used to be this cheesy thing people would ask, like if you, know, if, there was, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convince you? And I don't like these sort of gotcha games, but every now and then I ask myself the question, if I'm honest, it kind of depends on the moment, like which part are we looking at? And I'm like, we're distanced from all that God wants from us, and apart from Christmas, we would be destined for judgment, for wrath and unceasing separation, the deadest of all dead ends, the ugly truth on display for all eternity. Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians 1 of a time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is a New Testament text. And it speaks of a future that I don't want for me or anyone else, really. And it's not just a one-time theme either. <laughs> Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing the days in malice and envy, being hated, hated by others and hating one another. Romans 6.23, the first half, keeps it fairly simple. For the wages of sin is death. And maybe my least favorite of the descriptions of me apart from Christmas is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is not pessimistic poetry, or repressed self-hate, or mythology, or theory. No, this is gospel truth. The bad news part, without which the good news part, fails to warm our hearts and elicits no more than a shrug, maybe another routine trip to 421 East Richmond Road. I don't know if it's beneficial for us to keep these things general. Anybody can say, I'm an imperfect person. Anybody can say, I'm a sinner. But it's a little bit more uncomfortable when things get specific. I'm gonna ask you to do something somewhat uncomfortable this morning. I know you don't know me, and so I'm sort of like, sorry, not sorry. But I think, here's the thing, I want you to feel the beauty of Christmas. And sometimes it's hard to feel the beauty of Christmas when we've forgotten just how much we need it. And what I'm gonna do is I'm going to actually just ask you some questions. We're just gonna identify some sins. We'll stick with the big 10, starting at the back and working our way to the top. And I'm gonna just essentially identify a sin. Here's what I want you to do. If this is a sin with which you are currently struggling or which you have really had some struggle with in the past, I'm just gonna ask you to stand up. I just, today's the first time I've ever done this with adults. It works with kids, right? Because they have nothing to lose. <laughs> Y'all got more to lose. I get it. I understand this is very odd. But again, I want you to appreciate the beauty of Christmas. So let's start at the back end. If, uh, if you are a person, the last commandment is about not coveting, which put positively is about contentment. If you're a person who struggles to be content with who you are, the body that God gave you, the story that God gave you, with what you have, and you covet if you look at somebody else's house or salary or truck or husband or wife or parents or kids or abilities or brain or whatever it might be, if you currently do or have in the past fought a battle against coveting and you struggle with contentment, I'm gonna ask you to stand up. It's right where you are. Stand. And once you're standing, as we go through these, uh, just... If there's another one that hits you, just raise your hand for it. You can put your hand back down after. Just raise your hand. I think it's important to go public with these things. The next one on the list is lying, deceit, not telling the truth. If you're a person who sometimes hides the truth or intentionally misrepresents it, maybe just for kicks, maybe to get ahead, maybe because you're afraid of the truth and how it might expose you. If you do or have struggled with lying, if you're sitting, stand. If you're standing, raise your hand. How about stealing? You know, this is a funny one because it's probably been for most of you a long time since you were tempted to steal a candy bar. (laughs) But we take things that aren't ours at work, at home. I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit in your imagination with this one. If you're a person who does or has struggled now or at times with taking things that do not belong to you, that God has not given you, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand or stand. All right, how about, uh, here's a fun one, how about adultery? Now you understand that the commands aren't just about one thing you've done wrong. It's about a heart issue. Jesus makes this clear. And so this one covers everything related to sexual sin. And that is anything, any form of sexual expression outside of God's design of a husband and a wife. Maybe it is adultery. Maybe it's just looking too long. Maybe it's forming an emotional bond that you shouldn't form. Maybe it's pornography. I don't know what it might be. But again, unfortunately, our imaginations don't need too much help on this one. 
If you're willing to acknowledge that now or in the past, there's been some form of sexual immorality that has had a grip on your heart, I'm going to ask you to stand or raise your hand. Anger is up next. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know it's actually murder, and you're probably thinking, I think I'm good here. Uh, Jesus said that if you have been angry with the person in your heart, you have essentially, at a heart level, eliminated that person. We do this with our words. We do this with our passive aggressiveness. We do this with our actions. Some of you in here, let's be real, some of you in here may have taken another person's life. For others, it will be the manifestation of harbored anger. If you have or do fight anger, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand or stand. Uh, the father-mother one is a strange one because it takes different form as we age. When we're young, to honor our father and mother is to obey them, to do what they say. As we grow older, though, it in certain senses gets more complicated. It's not as black and white. and Sometimes it can be hard to know what it looks like. I sometimes don't even know what it looks like as a grown-up in my own life and the lives of others to honor. But I know when I'm breaking it. I know when I'm not doing it. I know when I'm failing to honor or dishonoring. If you have been or are a person who dishonors or fails to properly honor your father and mother, stand or raise your hand. You know, these last six have to do with our relationships to others before God. The first four have to do directly with God. I don't like the next one. I don't like the Sabbath command. And you know that we're not called to obey the Sabbath in a literal way. It's not like you have to stop working on Friday at sundown and can't start till Saturday at sundown. No, that's not how it works, but it is still very prevalent, maybe especially for us in this culture, because it's about not working too much. It's about stopping the constant train of activity and desire for productivity. It's about holding back and pausing to remember and recognize and confess that God is the one whose work sustains the world. He doesn't actually need my help. If you are a person who overworks or in some way violates the Sabbath, and this one isn't theoretical for me, I'm going to ask you to stand or raise your hand. We'll combine two and three together. Three is about misusing his name, which I think does have something to do with the way in which the word God or Jesus comes out of our mouth, but it's much deeper than that. Do you use the label Christian to benefit you? economically or socially? Do you pull this out? I'm a Christian when it's beneficial for you, but then put it back away when it's not? Do you say, yeah, I know God when it's like helpful in the situation you're in, but then not when it's not? That's the third command. And the second one, <laughs> I'm probably, you probably aren't tempted to make a literal idol of gold, but we are tempted sometimes to put God in a box. That's why God said, don't make an image of me. Because if you make an image of me, then you're in control of who I am. And that's not how this works because you don't get to be in control because only I am deserving of being in control. If you are a person who has misused in any way the name of the Lord God or who has attempted to put him into a box so that you can maintain control, stand or raise your hand. And then finally, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't even know what to do with this one because it would just be easy to say anybody and we'd all raise their hands. Let's just say, I don't know, the past month, can you remember a time when you had a pretty good sense of what God wanted you to do or not to do? And in that moment, you did the opposite. And it's important for us to understand that each of those little decisions are essentially us giving over this, this crown, this throne that belongs to God alone to something else. If you are a person who has prioritized something else over God in the last month, stand 
or raise your hand. Maybe it's easier to feel it now. I mean, if it weren't for Christmas, every single one of us, we're a bunch of sinful people. This is a really sinful church. I don't know if you know that. You can look around if you want to. Pretty much everybody's up. Every single one of us, if it weren't for Christmas, would come face to face with the white hot wrath of God. But you don't have to. Why? Because his name is Jesus, which means he already did. Because he is Jesus, you can have a seat. And the physical motion of sitting represents a deeper reality that you have permission, divine permission to trust that all shall be well, even for you. Why? Because those passages continue. Because Colossians 1.22 says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because Titus 3 continues, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 6.23 once again keeps it simple, second half, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm not sure you can match the beauty of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. To understand his name is to know why he came. Personally, I don't care much for the trappings of Christmas but that is entirely irrelevant because I need it and you do too. One of the things that we're going to be doing over the course of this month is responding immediately through a time of reflection. I hesitate to say anything more because the work of Christ is finished and yet we also know that the work of Christ may be finished but it is increasingly applied to our transformation as we think about it. You got 24 days till Christmas, which means you're going to hear the name Jesus a lot over the next season. And I invite you to practice this discipline of every time you hear the name, reminding yourself that you know what it means. And we'll start right now. You've got a little card that you were given on the way in. I want to ask you to take it out. Its importance outweighs its size by a long shot. But I want you to pay attention to what you see. On the blue side, it says, He is Jesus, underneath which is the most appropriate symbol for Christmas cross and our verse you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins on the back are some questions I want to give you a minute to think through the first one don't jump ahead too quickly the question is from what sins do you need to be rescued you've already motioned with your bodies let's do one more thing I want to ask you to take out a pen or a pencil and just right now we're gonna give you a couple minutes just right now you got plenty of space on this thing if you write small enough and speak in code What's the answer to the question? From what sins do you need to be rescued? I would be afraid of the first question if it weren't for the second. The second is simple enough that it merely needs to be read and then acted upon. Will you trust Jesus 
You know, the one whose name means the Lord saves? To do what he came to do. Father God, we're grateful for the opportunity to worship together as brothers and sisters who are just meeting each other. We are more, even more grateful for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.